It's Golden Hour Adventure Time, featuring everyday people doing extraordinary things. From the peaks of victory to the valleys of defeat, these are their stories. Now, from the back of the pack, your hosts, Justin and Robbie. Hey, welcome to Golden Hour Adventures. Every single time I say this, but we have the most interesting guests we've had yet so far. Uh, I said that on the last one. I'll probably say it on the next one. But um, we have a priest of eight years who also is a ultra marathoner. He's got five 100 milers under his belt and one insane 200 miler on his belt under his belt. So uh, welcome to Golden Hour Adventures, Brian Hess. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man, I'm uh, excited. So uh, I feel like we have a lot to unravel in this in this short time frame that we have you. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, glad to be very glad to be here. Yeah, the, yeah. When I heard about your podcast, I uh, I'm excited to see the other people you're interviewing for sure. I kind of like what you're doing here. Cool. Yeah, I feel like we have a, a pretty cool little platform. We're just kind of our uh, our stances that we highlight everyday people doing extraordinary things. So. There's so many podcasts out there that I feel personally, and I think Robbie feels the same, that it's kind of just features the elite in every type of field, whether it be running, hunting, you know, traveling, hiking, whatever it may be. It seems like the elites kind of get all the all the credit. So um, I have the claim to fame that I'm a back of the pack uh, ultra marathoner. So I want to interview the back of the pack type people, you know, so we have uh, more time for conversations at the back of the pack. <laughs> yes. I feel like we get our money's worth out of everything. So <laughs> exactly. Cool, a few bonus man. miles usually too. Yeah. Yeah. A few bonus. We always get lost. Yes. The, uh, the mountain goats, uh, eat the flagging and cause you to get lost. Right. <laughs> yep, that happened last time. <laughs> cool. Well, man, let's just, uh, let's get right to it and let's break this guy down. So, um, a priest that's, uh, a priest that runs ultra marathons. It's, that's not something you, maybe hear about uh very often i don't know it just kind of when i when i first met you i kind of was like whoa you're a priest no way you know it kind of it kind of caught me off guard like you're out here and i think you were running a 20 miler and you know was was getting down on it so uh yeah when i show up to a group run i usually i usually i usually want to let you get to know me for a minute before i before i drop the this weird job this weird life that i have because you know it's just you know people have an image of a priest and what he does and the image is usually old and fat um and i and i'm trying well i'm getting older but i'm trying not to be fatter (laughs) and so i usually like to usually like to let you know me for a minute but i don't but i but i certainly don't hide that i'm a priest because it's uh it is it is it is the primary joy of my life and for sure um uh, running uh is is certainly a secondary joy but boy being a priest is my primary joy absolutely that's that's awesome it's a it's a you know it's a very cool calling that you have so um how how did you get into that like what 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 desired you in life to become a priest? I mean, is uh, there's got to be a story behind it? Can you uh, sure. walk us yeah, through yeah, the story? Would love to tell you. Would love to tell you the story. So yeah, my uh, my parents are uh, both Catholic, and they raised us Catholic. Um, so we were always close to the Catholic Church, uh, doing our best to to be good Catholics. But I think everybody, anybody who tries to be Catholic is a bad Catholic by almost by default. Um, so <laughs> I think we're all kind of bad Catholics in a way. And so, uh, yeah, we so we were raised close to the church, uh, going to church most every Sunday, being involved in the different programs of our local parish. Um, so through that, I was always kind of close to the priests of our parish, and they were really good role models for me. Uh, the priests of my parish were always very joyful sort of people. Where and is that your joy was always intriguing to me. Where's um, this parish at? Oh yeah, yeah. Down in uh, I'm in I'm in Newcastle, Wyoming right now. So I say down in Cheyenne. So I was raised in Cheyenne. Okay. Um, dad was military that moved us to Cheyenne when I was really young, and that was the primary, the almost the only place I remember. So okay. Yeah, raised in raised in Cheyenne, city of about fifty thousand people at that point. Um, so we had a church that was big enough to have two or three priests there. Uh, always very joyful people. So just kind of getting to know them, I was intrigued by their lifestyle and their happiness. And so I certainly thought about priesthood from when I was really young, but sort of in the vein at which we all sort of think about being an astronaut at the same time. Like these are just the the dreams you have when you're a little kid. I'm going to be an astronaut or a priest or something like that. Um, <laughs> or one of those guys that got to follow my dream. 
Um, and so lived a normal, normal high school life, but, you know, elementary, high school, all that stuff was pretty normal for me, dated and did all that stuff. But towards the end of high school, uh, just by being close to the church, um, went on a particular retreat that brought this idea of priesthood back into my focus because I more or less left it behind as I started to make post high school plans. I was kind of really thinking about going into civil engineering or something like that. But then this retreat brought this idea of priesthood back onto my radar of post high school plans. And the idea just kind of sat in my heart for a couple months until I realized that this idea is not going away. And I've got to, I have to deal with this. I can't just ignore this, this call or this thing that's going on in my heart. I've got to deal with this. Um, so I had this idea that um, I could get, if I went to a university or some uh, uh, regular college, I could get lost there for a lot of years and really not, not find the direction that, I'm, that God's calling me to go. But I had a sense that a seminary is a unique place and for a unique purpose, a seminary is a place designed to form priests. And so I kind of realized, kind of thought like if I go to a seminary and this isn't where God wants me to go, then I'll figure it out quicker. And I, then I could eliminate that as an option. But going to university, I could get just lost there for a while. So it just seemed logical at that point um, just to try seminary first, just to see if that works out. And so I went through all of the application processes. We have very rigorous application processes, processes to get into seminary. Um, interviews with all sorts of people, psychological evaluations, health evaluations, academic transcripts, and all of that. So um, went through the application process, was accepted in the seminary, um, went to a seminary that was run by a monastery of monks. Uh, uh, They're called Benedictine monks. They're, they especially dedicate themselves to prayer, and they run this uh, seminary as a way to just make money for the monastery and keep it open. Surrounded by seminary in the middle of Missouri. Oh, the middle of Missouri. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we went out to Missouri, left Wyoming, went to Missouri for this, uh, for the first uh, four years of seminary. Uh, and that very quiet place was a great place just to uh, uh, hear God more clearly. And every year he just kept saying, just come back for one more year. I had no, um, no assurances that I was supposed to be a priest. I, 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 God just kept opening up to me the next step. So God just kept saying in my heart, one more year, just come back for one more year. So I kept coming back for one more year and one more year. Um, graduated from there. Um, to be a priest in the Catholic Church usually takes two degrees. It usually takes an undergrad degree in philosophy and then a master's degree in theology. So I graduated with the with that under with that uh, bachelor's in philosophy, and then I moved on to the master's portion. Um, and during that master's portion is where uh, this calling that I heard from God became very clear. Uh, I, I could hear very clearly God saying, "If this is what I made you for," uh, and then I became most in tune uh, with the desires of my own heart. And I realized that this is also what's going to make me happy because it's how it's what God made me for. So then I pursued priesthood very deliberately uh, and said, I just kind of told God in my prayer, I said, God, I think I hear you clearly. So I'm just going to go do this thing unless you say otherwise, but it's, it's going to take a two by four to stop me at this point. I'm just going <laughs> to go do it. Uh, so then uh, I just pushed on through um, and was ordained a priest in 2014 uh, relative to other, other men who have become priests. Uh, my story is very simple for sure. Uh, cause some guys, they really wrestle with the call and I like to describe it as, as like blinders on a horse to keep a horse from getting distracted. That's what God did with me. He just like, just put, he just put blinders on. He just kind of drew me ahead cause he, he knew that if I got distracted, I'd get really distracted. So he just said, <laughs> come this way. You're going to be happy if you just come this way. So I'm just not, not, not going to let this one wander cause he's not good with wandering. So he led me to priesthood pretty directly and pretty young. I was ordained to priesthood. 27 years old. And most guys who are ordained a priest are, are doing that in their thirties nowadays, because they usually do college, a little bit of uh, regular secular work experience first uh, before they, before they really hear that call to priesthood. But God put that call in my life early. So I thought, well, I didn't think at that point, because I was only 18, but I thought, let's just, let's just go for it and see what happens. So that's kind of how I landed. So that's how I landed as a priest in Wyoming. You become a priest generally for a particular area, what we call a diocese. So since I was raised in Wyoming, I most naturally became a priest for Wyoming. And so, uh, so I could be assigned as a parish priest anywhere in our state, which is, to me, one of the greatest job perks because Wyoming is just such a cool place. Uh, I could be assigned anywhere from here in the Black Hills where we are to... Um, 
Southwest Wyoming near Utah or up by the Tetons or Yellowstone or you could be anywhere in Wyoming, which is pretty cool for me. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, you've, you've definitely been a, a couple different cool places as well. So, um, can you go to seminary without becoming a priest? Is that something that's common? And, or do you, I mean, you, I know you typically go to seminary to have a, you know, a path in that direction, but with, you know, is there other, you know, professions that you can take when you go to seminary? That's a, that's a good question. Um, you go to seminary with the, with the idea of exploring priesthood. Um, but uh, I'd say about a quarter of the guys that I started seminary with actually became priests because uh, leaving seminary is very, very common. You go there just to hear the call more clearly. Um, so the priesthood is the only, um, you know, goal of seminary. But people, people, and once they decide that, once they decide or discern, uh, once they learn in, through their prayer that they're not called to be a priest, then they just naturally leave seminary. But yeah, priesthood is the only real outcome of seminary. Talk a little bit about the uh, the monastery. That seems uh, kind of interesting. For I, I'm not Catholic. I wasn't raised Catholic. I, I'm you know very interested in the different religions. So it's just you know it's kind of just mind blowing when you you say you go to a monastery to study. It's that's extremely interesting to me. So ex explain you know talk sure. about that to the listeners and let them know like kind of what that was like. Sure. Yeah. So uh, in the Catholic Church, we still have monks and nuns around like you like you can picture from medieval times. And those are very specialized callings. And and so every every monastery looks different. It's usually centered around a, a particular sort of um, what we call charism. And that would be like a gift gift from the Holy Spirit, a certain particular expression of uh, just God's work in the world. Um, so you, 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 you hear terms like the Benedicts, Benedictines or the Franciscans. These are different kinds of religious orders within the church. And so those are going to be, uh, men, monks or women, nuns or sisters who, uh, who choose to live together in a particular community for a particular purpose. So the monks, um, and, and some are, some are very active in the world and some are very contemplative. They're very withdrawn from the world. Um, so we have some monks in Wyoming who are very withdrawn from the world. Um, they dedicate themselves to just prayer uh, and they roast and sell coffee to keep the doors open to their place. But they 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 stay they keep themselves pretty locked off from the world because they want to they want to spend their lives in just prayer. Uh, and then on the and then on, so that would be very contemplative. And then on the other on the other hand would be the monks that I went to school with who ran my seminary. They're active in the world. They have a mission in the world. Um, at their monastery, they dedicate themselves to prayer and work, just a very balanced lifestyle uh, where you dedicate yourself to this monastery for the rest of your life. So they were kind of cool. Uh, they're, those monks, their dedication to their particular monastery, their dedication to that particular place and that particular group of men was really cool. Uh, and that was a, a, a good instance of that dedication, the way they live and die there is that they're raised there, or, or not raised there, they join there when they're adults. Um, they spend their lives there, uh, performing whatever work they are assigned to. They pray with these men every single day. They love some of them. They hate some of them. Uh, a good <laughs> friend of mine is a monk there. Uh, and so he, t he testifies that you don't love all of the brothers. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're being what it is. <laughs> I mean, I someone. your entire life. Yeah, yeah, if you're spending your entire life with someone, there's, you know, there's got to yep. be a... Uh that kind of love hate relationship. I got to go get and some of that coffee. A, that, that coffee sounds yeah. uh, pretty good that, you know, that's, that's how they stay. Yeah. Because they, you know, you know, they perfected the yep. coffee. There's monks out there that uh, yes. brew beer too, aren't they? Don't they uh, brew beer? Some of yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a very European thing. I think the guys here would brew beer, but coffee just has less government regulation around it. So it's easier oh, okay. for them. Awesome. So being in the state of Wyoming, one of the least populated states in the nation, how, how, how big is the Catholic religion in the state? Yeah, so we have about, I think we have about 50,000 Catholics across the state with, a, you know, the statewide population is about 600,000. Uh, and I think we have 35 or 40 priests to cover that. Um, so uh, relative to other dioceses, you know, Wyoming is as rural as it is that that's reflected in our church as well. So every Sunday I cover three different churches and I drive 150 miles on Sunday and 
And that's a pretty common circuit for our Wyoming priests. I've certainly got brother priests around the state who, who do even bigger driving circuits on Sundays uh, just to serve these, these beautiful little communities in, in little small towns of 1,000 or 2,000 people. So, yeah, about 50,000 people, about 35 or 40 priests. I forget the exact number there. Well, I was unaware that you had to travel. I thought that you just kind of, you had your specific church that you belonged to, and then that was it. I didn't realize that you traveled to different communities every week. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a huge blessing because those those little those little communities. Uh, one of the I, so I traveled to one community where the where about sixty people come to mass on Sunday. The other smaller town, about thirty people come to mass on Sunday, and it's just a it's just a joy to get to be in a small tight knit community with with that few with that few people. You really get to know everybody there. Oh, for sure. I'm sure they're very grateful that you you know that you travel and you know are there with them every Sunday as yeah. well. So yeah, they certainly are. I'm grateful when the trip works, and occasionally in the winter time, you just don't get to make the trip. Yeah, I understand that as well. <laughs> they'll, su- <laughs> yeah. they'll Subaru Outback and only get you so far sometimes in the wintertime. Huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a great car. Yes. Hey, so uh, you mentioned that you went to seminary and then it, you know, which is what, about a six year with the master's, probably a six years. And then you. Eight, eight years for us because there's a lot of other stuff added into the. Program. Oh, okay. Okay. Got you. Got you. What is the process like of actually becoming a priest? So once you graduate from seminary, are you kind of, are you a priest or do you have to go through like a bunch of interviews and I, 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 yeah, just kind of walk through the the process of actually sure. being ordained a priest in the Catholic church? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so sem- going to seminary is kind of like being under a microscope. Um, every, all the staff and the faculty at the seminary is responsible for forming you into a priest. Um, and that also includes uh, pretty regular reports back to the bishop of my home diocese. Um, cause you only get to go to seminary if you're sponsored by a diocese. So I had to apply to the diocese. Um, because uh, every priest is attached to a diocese or something like a monastery. Uh, there's no rogue priests in the church. We're all uh, attached and obedient to somebody. Um, so by the time I finish seminary, the bishop has pretty much decided that he wants me to be a priest. Um, he, he trusts that I'm not too crazy, or at least that I'm that I'm crazy in the right way. And so he's going to be <laughs> so he's going to be willing to ordain me a priest. Um, and so at that point, the interviews of all the interviews are all done because they've been happening for eight years through seminary. Um, you're already attached to a particular diocese. For me, it was the diocese here in Wyoming. Um, and then the, the ceremony of ordination is what makes you a priest. Um, and the, and the, the key part of that ceremony is that the bishop lays hands on my head. Uh, and we believe that that imparts the gift of priesthood, that imparts the gift of the Holy Spirit on me. Um, and we believe that we have an unbroken line of succession of uh, bishops ordaining bishops by that laying on of hands. We believe we have an unbroken line of succession going back to the 12 apostles. Um, that's, a, that's a core teaching about uh, Catholic priesthood. Uh, and so I can, um, so I can, so I believe that uh, the bishop who ordained me was ordained by another bishop going all the way back uh, for 2,000 years to the original 12 apostles that Jesus chose. And so I share in that, that priesthood of Jesus is what we say. So what do you, what do you follow? How do you, when you have mass on Sunday, how do you plan it out? Is it on your own? Or do you have a guidebook to follow? Sure. Yeah. Uh, lots, lots of books, <laughs> lots of books and lots of, lots of rules. We follow, uh, we follow a standard set of biblical readings about over about a three year cycle of readings. Um, so if you go to any Catholic church on a Sunday, you should be hearing, uh, ordinarily you would be hearing the same set of readings. Um, the different, uh, some prayers are set. Some prayers you have options to choose from. Um, the homily or the sermon is where I, is where it's up to me to craft my own message at that point, usually based off of the readings and just trying to, uh, take the, the, the education and the gifts that I have and co- kind of open up the reading, the, the biblical readings we just heard for the people. But certainly much of the, much of the things that Catholics do on Sunday is, is pretty set from day, uh, from week to week or even from day to day. And when we approach that rightly, we find that as a comfort, uh, you go there and you just know what's going to happen. Um, 
They, they know that I'm not going to walk up to the front on the Sunday and say, hey, good morning, everybody. They know that I'm going to say the Lord be with you. And they're not going to they, they know exactly how to respond. They say and with your spirit and that routine becomes very comforting to to a to, to an average Catholic soul. I um <laughs> sorry, <laughs> my dog is upstairs barking. I'm trying to. Yeah, it looks like you got a distraction there. <laughs> I'm trying to wrangle him as well. Um, <laughs> so um, it seems like you kind of had everything figured out from you know junior senior year of high school. But was there any fight back from your family? Because I know once you enter you know the priesthood that it's you know you're not going to get married and not going to have any children. Was you know was i i would assume with your 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 whole family growing up in the catholic church that they're probably you know they were probably super supportive but i mean you never know families are crazy sometimes so was there any fight back families from the are crazy family? sometimes maybe all the Luckily time <laughs> for me no when my parents uh my parents told me about this later um when my parents saw that I was really thinking about this, um, that was, you know, in the the first wave of uh, abuse scandals that uh, that came to light in the church, and so they knew that priests were kind of targets. Um, and so they, when they saw that I was kind of thinking about this, they were very intentionally hands off. Um, they wanted this to be my decision. They didn't want to push me into it um, because if I was unhappy, then they would feel guilty for that. And they didn't want to push me away from it because if I was unhappy, they'd feel guilty for that. So they very much, uh, they very much said nothing while I was thinking about and praying about all this. And they did the same thing for my brother who joined the military because uh, they wanted that. They same same thing. You know, if anything terrible happened to him in, in overseas combat service or something, uh, they would feel terrible if they pushed him into that. So they wanted it to be his decision. So that's what they did with me. They were uh, they let it be my decision, and certainly their biggest concern. For me, it was that I would be lonely, that I would just not be happy. And that they, um, but they they come and visit me, and they see all the people in my parish and how how much I'm loved by the people of this parish, and they have no concerns anymore about my my loneliness. I could, uh, the, most priests like to say that we could stand for a little bit more alone time in our lives. We spend <laughs> our days with people. Um, so my parents do certainly uh, were never opposed. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, they were not opposed at all, which is a blessing because. I know that some some priests I know have had to fight family to uh, to continue in seminary. Yeah, you know, um, my family's been extremely supportive of me, you know, joining the military and, you know, they have a long background in military and they were extremely supportive of that. Um, they were definitely like, you're going in the Air Force. There's no option of anything else. So <laughs> even though my dad was in the Army. <laughs> there was no option. So, um, yeah, that was kind of my force. Like you were definitely going to the uh, air force and not the army. So, um, but I, yeah, think, I think my parents, were, they, were, they were able to get behind a, a career of service. Like I think yeah. they, they, cause dad, my dad was military as well, yeah. air force. And I think they, they, that, that idea of service makes a lot of sense in, in the family ethos I was raised in. Yeah. Absolutely. You probably have a more family community being a priest than you would just being a, you know, a husband with a wife and all that. I think so. I think so. Yeah. You have a huge family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. You get to deal with everyone's problems too, yes. I'm sure. Yes. It's really, fun when it's really fun to be. It's really, it was weird at first. I've gotten used to it now, but being called father by people who are three times older than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see that. I can see that. So, uh, not only are you, you know, teaching the word of God every day, but you're also getting out there and you're crushing miles on the trails. So I, uh, my best. I see in 2018 is when you ran your first ultra marathon. Uh, what, what made you get into trail running and eventually lead to the craziness that we all do known as ultras? Well, I like to I like to I like to start the story very briefly in high school where I ran cross country for a week and then I quit because I thought this running thing is just dumb. <laughs> there's, there's no way I'm doing this. <laughs> oh my god. I think but, cross country's the wrong way because it's you know, five K as hard as you can go in the dirt or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I, um, so yeah, so I, I didn't do, I didn't do sports in high school. I did Boy Scouts in high school. Uh, also mom and dad, um, we, uh, family vacations for us, there were four of us kids. Dad was making not enough in the military. Uh, so camping was our vacations. That's what okay. mom and dad could afford. So between camping as the, as family vacation and Boy Scouts as my recreation, I was just always kind of doing outdoor stuff. Um, Never organized sports in high school, but always just kind of uh, outdoors camping sort of stuff. And uh, tried that cross country thing for a week, ate of that, uh, just went back (laughs) to camping through high school. Uh, But then it was like, it was like towards the end of college seminary when I was getting ready to graduate from that school in Missouri, about 22 years old or so, you know, that, that darn teenage metabolism was quitting on me. Uh, I'd gotten away with doing nothing so far uh, as far as exercise. Uh, and then it wasn't working anymore. I was getting getting fatter and just not not kind of liking that and realizing you got to do something. So I kind of started just dipping my toe into running because I just really was not attracted to any other sport. And then about that time, uh, my my graduate level seminary was in Denver. And so about the time that I was trying running on my own, I went to Denver uh, and I ended up in the middle of Denver uh, for my next stage of schooling. And Denver is just such an outdoorsy, health-conscious city. It's just darn it, it's in the air you breathe down there in Denver. So, <laughs> so I was trying running a little bit. You know, my goal was just to run to that park down the street and then back to the school. That was just a five-mile route, and I couldn't do it. And so I just kept, I kept working it that day by day, just trying. I thought if I could just run a little bit further today than yesterday, then maybe we'll get there. And the day, the day I was able to run that whole five miles was a huge victory in my world. Um, and then I got intrigued by marathons. I was hearing people about this marathon thing. And so I signed up for a marathon before I had, before I had ever run any other race. Oh, my God. <laughs> so what I marathon? signed up for the marathon. What uh, marathon? The Colfax Marathon in Denver runs okay. up and down uh, Colfax Street. Uh, runs through Stadium. Very cool race. So I signed up for the marathon and then I thought you better, you should sign up for some shorter races. So like you could figure out this packet pickup, you know how to put a bib on your shirt. So, you just <laughs> out some of these basic logistics. so signed up for a couple of five K's ran a half marathon in preparation for that first Colfax marathon. Um, and I ran it. I loved it. I couldn't walk afterwards. I couldn't bend over to untie my shoe afterwards. Uh, my family that came to support me, they had to, t- they had to untie my shoes for me. Uh, but I, I thought, this is kind of cool. Let's do this again. So it always worked for the next, for three years in a row, I just ran the Colfax Marathon, a couple other small, uh, smaller races around Denver through the years. But for three years in a row, I ran the Colfax Marathon. Um, the fourth and final year I was in Denver, um, the, I, the, the Colfax Marathon didn't work for me. So I signed up for the Greenland Trails 50K. So that would have actually been my first ultra and that would have been 2014. Uh, Greenland Trails 50K. And I thought it's only five miles further than a marathon. This is, this is, this is nothing. You got this. So I trained like I was doing a marathon and then I tried to run that thing like I was doing a marathon. Oh, no. <laughs> Except that, you know, I bought some trail shoes because that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, I didn't train in them because I was doing all my running in Denver. Um, and then I didn't understand why all these other runners were walking uphill. at the <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand why they had drop bags. Um, I like ran through the aid stations uh, and like, because like in a marathon, sometimes you, you get like disposable clothing, like in a marathon, like you'll like have a long sleeve shirt to start the race in. And then you'll like throw the shirt about, uh, by the side of the road to your aid station, you know, that some, somebody's just going to pick it up and take it to goodwill for you or something. I, I did. I did that in my first ultra as all these <laughs> losers I thought were stopping for their silly drop bags. And then the Greenland Trails is like a three loop or four loop course. Um, and on the second loop, I found out why everybody was walking the uphills. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was wrecked and it was only like mile 10. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, maybe, maybe these guys know what they're doing with some of their walking and some of the solid food they eat during the race. And I just dragged myself through the rest of that race. Uh, got done hours later than what I confidently told my friends I was going to do. Um, 
And about that time, and that was really discouraging, actually, you know, to, to realize, like, you're not as, this, this is a different beast. I thought, I thought you're not as good at this as you thought. And it turns out that these ultras and these trails are just a different thing. Uh, so that was kind of discouraging. And then about that time was when I became a priest and I moved to Wyoming, just all the new stuff of trying to adjust to a new life. Um, I fell away from, I definitely fell away from running for several years, just light running here and there, but never anything serious. Um, and then uh, a buddy priest of mine, he got into the hundred miler thing. He got into the ultra thing in order to uh, get in shape for elk hunting season. And he lost a ton of weight because uh, he'd, he'd always been kind of a big guy. He lost a ton of weight, did great. It was wonderful for him. But he was doing all of this on a, on a keto diet. And I thought, eh, if this ultra thing, if, that, if it takes that diet, if that, li- if that lifestyle, like the poor guy had to give up all his beer. And I thought, <laughs> if, that's, if that's what it takes to run ultras, I don't want it. So I, let, I just kind of watched him do the ultra thing from a distance while I kept doing my, my shorter running. And then I moved to Cody, Wyoming. My third assignment, I uh, moved to Cody, Wyoming. And there I, I got connected with a good group of uh, local runners, including a lot of trail runners and some ultra runners. And I, and I met these folks and they were, they were eating normal and, and, and having a beer after a run and still doing, still doing great races. And I thought, okay, that's when I started to look like it doesn't take, it, it takes a moderate, you know, um, change in lifestyle, but it, you don't have to, you don't have to give up all the good stuff in life in order to run ultras. So that, that was about 2018. And that's what got me interested in the ultra thing all over again. So from there, I ran another 50K uh, in 2018. And then 2019, I ran my first 50 miler, my second 50 miler, and my first 100 miler all in the same year. <laughs> uh, because ultra running for me has very much been a drug. And where if a little bit is good, then more must be better. And that's how I've got out the last five years or so. Yeah, see, in uh, 2019, the the Three Bears Trail Race, Mama Bear 50 Miler in Preston, Idaho, you did. Uh, you got second place. You threw down an impressive time <laughs> on that one. Were, well, thank you. There were three people in that race. Oh, um, well. <laughs> yeah. We so, didn't have to uh, say that. You could have just said, yeah, I got second place. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to tell you about that one because uh, my friend Marina she decided that after I ran my first fifty she's like all right maybe I can do this too um, and so I said all right well, I'm going to do this race with you um, and when we when we we signed up for this this obscure race in the middle of nowhere and then we saw like this is weird there's not other people signing up for this race uh, at which point her parents said um, like. You have to stick with her all day. You cannot leave her out there alone. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I'll I'll stick with her all day. I'm good. I'm good for that. The other guy. So three of us start the race. The other guy just takes off, and the two of us just kind of work our way through this day on a on a course that is on parts of the the uh, the Bear 100 course, just a okay. gnarly gnarly section of mountain. And we work we work our way through that race. Um, 50 miles and I think 15 hours is about as long as you want to be with somebody I think yep. I think <laughs> she was mostly sick of me by the end of that day <laughs> so yeah three people got my second place there yeah that's awesome and then I see you uh you jumped into the 100 miler after that a little bit about a month later you went out and did a uh, javelina yeah, I got into Havelina. I I started to follow like all of the ultra runners on Instagram, the the pros and the elites, and I realized like they're all at Havelina, and like there's no qualifications for most of these races. Like you could just pay your money and be on the same start line as all of the elites, which is what I think is one of the coolest things about our races. Yep. You know, if you go to Boston Marathon or something, like the elites are racing separately from you. But at our races, like everybody's on the same start line. And I think that's, I think that's really cool. And I hope that's a piece of our sport that we never lose. So I realized yeah. I could just go to Havelina and like see all of these cool people that I follow on Instagram. And, really <laughs> great event. Um, and it seemed like a good, it seemed like a good first hundred miler. Um, you know, that five loop course down the, in the desert. I know that a lot of people are just not interested in running laps in the desert, but my brain is broken in that way that it just doesn't bother me. I've yeah. done that race twice now and it just, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. It looks like the year after that, you, you missed a, a sub 24 barely. 
Oh yeah, I'll be back. I want my sub twenty four, and I'll be back to Havelina for that. Yeah, I would, because that I went to Havelina the next year, twenty twenty, because it was one of the few races that happened in twenty twenty. I wanted to do Bighorn that year, that got canceled. Um, but have they they managed to pull off Havelina that year? Um, so I came. Re- I wasn't really shooting for twenty four hours. I didn't think I could get it, and I, I wasn't familiar enough with the hundred miler yet to to give that a serious go. But twenty four and forty. 43 or something, um, I think. And so I want, I want the 24 hour I can do, I can get there now. And I think Havelina will be a good course when I get back to it. Cool. Cool. And then, uh, then it looks like you've jumped into, uh, you, you jumped right into a big mountain 100, the, the big horns. Yeah. Then I jumped into, yeah, then big horn and, uh, yeah. Cause I do it Havelina a second time. I'm like, this is fun, but I'm ready for more. Now it's time for something different. It's time for something just a little bit more elevation because we live in the mountains. And so Bighorn is our big local trail race in Wyoming. And so I thought that's, that's the place to jump in. And so that race was really, really, really beautiful. We had a, we had a pretty dry year. Um, We only had mud up top for the last two miles or so. And then anything below that was very dry, Uh, moderately warm, not as warm as this year, but moderately warm. Um, no rain or anything so we really had great conditions for a year at uh for a year at bighorn um and that's just such a that's just such a well executed race um and that was where i'd done my first 50 miler at bighorn so i kind of knew the whole course uh by just seeing it in a different way by going out and back um starting to play with uh pacers in a mountain setting and the, the poles and just the different ways that you have to eat when you're going when you're working your body in such a different way than, than Havelina that uh, Bighorn really does feel like my entrance into the, the, the big one hundreds, the big mountain hundreds. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun that year. Yeah. You have to, you have to climb up that 4,000 foot climb instead of running down. It. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, mile, mile three. And then by the time you run down it, you don't want it anymore. No, you're done. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah. I say just that somebody on, just on just a line of ants. Yeah, I always say that uh, when you're running on that road at the very start of it, you kind of get on the trail and somebody's standing there and slaps you in the face and like, "Welcome to the Bighorns." You're like, what? And then you look up yeah. and see tiny little yes, people yes. climbing. You're like, "Oh, I got to go up there." Is there an elevator? Or... Go <laughs> yeah. That first. That first. What was your takeaway from that big first big mountain race? Um, my big takeaway is that I that I was pretty hooked on that. Um, that I, I was, I was pleased with how well I did. Uh, I was shocked at how much I hurt. Um, <laughs> I, I finished that race. Uh, I knew a lot of folks from Kobe who were at that race. So we were kind of hanging out in the park all afternoon and cheering and everybody we knew who were running the hundred and the 50 and the 50 K. So just kind of hanging out in the park all afternoon. We went to dinner that evening. Uh, everybody was happy because they hadn't run a hundred miles. Um, and I, <laughs> You fall asleep I, at the table. I was out at dinner. I was about to fall asleep in my food. I'm like, guys, I gotta, I gotta go to sleep now. I'm gonna like vomit or pass out or something. So I was shocked at how tired I was. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway, I think from that race in particular, I think it's a good demonstration of it, is the support of the ultra community. The number of people that volunteer at that race, that volunteer every year for the exact same job who have just taken ownership of their aid stations like at Sally's Footbridge and just love it and love going there every year. And the folks who backpack in or horseback in aid stations, just to support me as I try to do this stupid activity of trying to run a hundred miles for no reason <laughs> at all. Like the ultra running community is cool. And I think that was the biggest takeaway from that. Um, you get these cowboys who are volunteering at that race who clearly don't know ultra running, but they know how to support it. Um, like we could sit around a campfire and recover for a couple minutes. And like these cowboys, like they knew what you needed. They knew how to take care of you. Yeah. And that was really, really cool with that race. They can give you chicken noodle soup at two in the morning. They know how to do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And a shot of whiskey. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's so, my favorite, one of my favorite aid stations, that cowboy camp. Yes. I've, I've been with people and had to sit around the fire and you know what happens when you sit around a fire in a hundred. Yeah, it's dangerous if there's whiskey there. <laughs> yeah, they're so all passed your, out on the ground. After your <laughs> first one hundred, uh, your mountain one hundred, like what would you say 
is a comparison to Havelina's fairly flat, I think, right? And, you know, yeah. a, a pretty fast course. Um, what would you say? I know there's big differences like, okay, there's elevation, you know, but just in your mindset of running a, almost a sub 24, 100 to go into a 30 hour, 100, that's, you know, of course you're going to add the elevation and, you know, it's, it's, and I don't, I've never run a flat 100, but I would say that it's, you know, no 100 is easy, but maybe the, like Havelina is a, a bit easier than what a mountain with 20,000 feet of climb would be. So like in your own mm-hmm. mind and your own, you know, comparison, what do you think is, you know, what's the difference in those? Yeah, those flat courses, you have to hold yourself back in the first parts of the race because you can you can run 11-minute miles on the whole Havelina course if you want to. Um, and so you got to resist that temptation in the first part of the race. Um, that part of Bighorn that slaps you in the face is, is good because it's just going to slow you down real quick. Those are 35-minute miles. <laughs> <laughs> that's really, really helpful uh, just, to, just to temper your enthusiasm in the first part of the race. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Going, going from a 24-hour race to a 30-hour race, that's to, to uh, kind of disperse your energy differently, to just be a little bit more patient with the whole thing is I think the big thing to learn in these mountain races that slow you down uh, and the other races that we'll talk about in just a minute, just learning to, to be patient with the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, we're going to get there. We're not, we're not the podium people, but we, 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 we never thought we were. So we're just having fun out here. And so just to, to be patient and know that you're gonna, you have time to fix whatever goes wrong. Um, if it's your stomach or your or your your legs, you have time to fix whatever goes wrong. Uh, if you just remember that there's a there's a long time to get this thing done. So you're saying like is don't go to Havelina and get behind Camille. Correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't want to chase her yeah. down. <clears throat> no. Top men in Havelina don't need a headlamp. The rest of us do because we're going to be out there past dark. What time does Havelina start? 6 a.m. You can get away without a headlamp at the start, and the the top guys are they've got it down to about 13 hours or so. Jeez. So, yeah, on that That's course, okay. you, you you do what you can in the early morning before it gets hot. You slow it down during the day because it's just it's just going to be hot during the day, and you, you save your energy for nighttime when you can pick up the pace a little bit more once it cools down. So you want to hit nighttime with some energy, with some power in your legs still to pick up the pace a little bit once the temperature goes down. Yeah, I would think like a race like that, you'd want to take it super slow during the day, like almost just like a a, a walk jog type thing, and then actually kind of pick up your pace at night when it cools down quite a bit. Because it's it's in the yeah, hundreds yeah. in the daytime, isn't it? No, usually low nineties. I think. Oh, okay. It, it, I don't think it usually hits hundred. It's like, it's the end of October, so they okay. they time it so they're they're trying not to hit hundred. Yeah, they've got okay. eight stations every five or six miles, and ice at every eight stations. Gotcha. So the ice bandana, the ice hat is a is a common tactic there. Yeah, it's just keeping your, everything you can to keep yourself cool at that race. Cool. So it looks like that you did the Bighorn One Hundred as a training run for the Bigfoot Two Hundred. Yes, yes, I did. <laughs> that's a that's a, a bold technique there, but yeah, <laughs> it's I, I I watched another guy do it, another podcaster that I was listening to for a while. I watched him do it, um, and I was like, all right, if, if it worked for him, I, I think it'll work for me. And so, uh, Bigfoot is a lottery system, so I, I just saw that the lottery was open, uh, and so that would have been what fall of twenty twenty. Uh, they have big footage just canceled for 2020, of course. Um, and so I put into the lottery thinking, you know, I, I was reading the trans, the, the, their, uh, their cancellation policy. And I saw that all the 2020 cancellations got first priority in the 2021 race. So I was like, you know, COVID transfers are going to get first priority. Uh, then triple crown entrants get top, get first priority. I was like, there's not going to be hardly any lottery spots left. I'm just going to throw my name into this thing, but there's no way I'm going to get into it. And then, then I accidentally got into the race, um, <laughs> which was really not what I thought was going to happen. Um, so, uh, when I, when I got that email, I ended up laughing out loud alone in my office as I was just reading that email thinking, what did I just get into? And 
so yeah, so that was that would have been fall of 2020 that uh, I got into the race or, or my, my entry was confirmed. So then 2021, knowing that I was already going to do Bighorn, Bighorn became a training run for Bigfoot. Um, and so, yeah, I certainly finished Bighorn thinking uh, without thinking, no, because that was always what, what my friends were saying was like, you just did 100 miles and you're wrecked. How are you going to do 200 miles? But I just kind of knew like, these 200 milers are such a different energy burn. You have so much more time. Like the way you feel after a hundred mile is miler is not how you're going to feel at mile 100 of a 200 miler. At least you shouldn't feel that way. So, so yeah, so Bigfoot was just the coolest adventure. Uh, when you want the next thing, like 200 milers are pretty darn cool. Um, to be out there for four days or so, it took me, 100 101 hours, I think, um, um, almost four days. And so to be out there just over four days. So to be out there for four days, uh, just doing the same thing day and night to stay focused on the same thing was, was um, people call it spiritual. You know, that's not language that I get on board because my spirituality is very Christian, but I get it because when I go on like a, when I go on like a prayerful retreat for four or five days, I'm just focused on the same thing for an extended period. And that's what this race was. And that's, I realized that's why people call it spiritual because you're just going to stay focused. That's why I think people call it spiritual. And it's, it's, it feels transcendent in a, in a strange way that's tough to put words to. But to stay focused on the same thing for four or five, four days or so, uh, to eat, sleep, uh, and just keep moving forward best you can was really, really cool. I've never been so tired. Um, but you're not as sore after a 200 miler as you are after a 100 miler, at least I wasn't because this 200 miler was about two thirds walking for me. Um, very much a mid pack backpacker. So, uh, two or two thirds of it or so was, was, was just hiking as, as uh, efficiently as possible. Uh, and running only happened on in the most perfect of circumstances. And so, so I was sleep deprived after the race but I, I was not as sore as I was after hundred milers. Mm. I was think your feet naps? would be wrecked. <laughs> my feet got wrecked uh, more than hundred milers. I definitely had, I'm usually pretty lucky with my feet. I don't often deal with blisters or anything. I've gotten through my last, got through my last race without taping anything on my foot, I think. Um, and so I'm usually pretty lucky in that regard, but yeah, 200 milers, there were, there was a lot of tape on my feet by the end. Uh, there's a fair number of water crossings that you got to deal with. And so your feet are going to be wet. And so, yeah, you want to have your, you want to have your foot, your feet dialed in before you get into the 200 milers. And I slept a lot during that race. I think I slept that way. That's the spot I want to improve when I go back to the 200s. Cause I will be going back. Um, but I think I could operate on less sleep, but I just kept watching the clock knowing that I'm tired and I don't, I've never felt this kind of tiredness before. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to play it safe and just sleep. So I slept two to three hours a night. And then a couple of cat naps during the day, I would, during the day I would be going till I couldn't see straight anymore. That was my sign to pull over to the side of the trail for a couple minutes and just lay down on the side of the trail. Cause you could really lay down on the side of the trail, just knock out for 15 minutes, just set an alarm on your, on your watch or your phone or something. And then you felt good for another couple of hours. Um, so that was kind of my strategy. Um, so much climbing in uh, in Bigfoot. It's it's twice the distance as Bighorn and twice the elevation. So Bighorn was a really good uh, prep for it. Okay, uh, you were just constantly, constantly going uphill. Um, so <laughs> every everybody's using poles at that race, um, and you gotta be you gotta be good at climbing. Uh, but amazing views, you know, day one, you're, you're going around Mount St. Helens in the volcano zone where it blew up back in the eighties. You get to see these incredible views of the mountains. And for the next set, several days after that, you move into this lush Pacific Northwest rainforest. I'd never been to the North. I'd never been to the Northwest. So this was my, this was my like a uh, crash course introduction to Pacific Northwest running. And it was very, very cool. And destination trail They're They're just the best at the aid station game. They have all the food you could ever want, all the hot food. You know, you get to an aid station, you order your hot food, they make it for you. And then you, you deal with your feet and your everything else while they're making your food for you. Cause you're just never rushing those aid stations. Uh, each aid station was 10 to 20 miles apart. And so each segment was kind of its own race and you would get to an aid station and 
reset, uh, take care of your stuff, and just make sure you're really, really ready for the next section because it was going to be six hours before you saw an aid station again. Wow. Well, that's that's awesome. Do you have any aspirations to uh, maybe do the Triple Crown? Yes. Yeah, I want to do the Triple Crown. Uh, you know, you're, 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 you you got to pay for these races, so uh, saving up the money. Uh, but that would that would be a big goal of mine. Um, as soon as I can make the money happen, I think there I, I there's not much I'm waiting on to do that except just being able to pay for it. So okay. as soon as I can, I'll I'll get into the I'll sign up for the Triple Crown and and see what the other two races are about because that was just the coolest experience. Just the coolest experience. Yeah, I've heard great things about doing a 200 and I can't wait. I set a goal for mine whenever I retire from the military. That will be my, uh, that'll be my present to myself is to go suffer for that four days. That is a great gift to yourself. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's going to be my goal. I'm not going to, I'm not going to jump the gun before then, but so coming into this year, you, uh, you set a different style of goal. Uh, not, not necessarily as strenuous as the triple crown, but you, said that you were going to run three 100s, all tough 100s, literally one of them's tough, uh, 100s, and uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll get that joke in a couple of minutes. Um, and yeah. you just said you're going to go out and set, you know, one run three 100s. Like what, what kind of drove you to that? Again, I, I, what drove me to that was just I kept seeing more races that I liked. Uh, I, I, I just keep seeing races that I like. I'm like, I think I could fit that in. Let's see how this goes. Um, there's de definitely the idea of challenging myself this year. That seemed like the, seemed like a good next challenge after doing a 200 last year, uh, to see if I could, um, sustain the fitness level necessary for hundreds. Cause I, you know, I spend from January to June, just getting up to fitness, getting up to fitness level for the hundreds to see if I can sustain this over the course of a summer um, is was kind of definitely the challenge portion of this for me. Um, but that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see if I could do that. Um, and so, yeah, so Black Hills 100 uh, back in June, uh, 16,000 feet. And to call that the warm-up 100 for the summer is insane. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we live in the Black Hills. I knew the whole race course, which was a lot of fun uh, to just run a course that you know every inch of this course to some degree. You've been, you've at least been on every inch of the course already. That was a lot of fun. That was an opportunity for my parents to come crew me because they've been intrigued by this. They're kind of curious what their son's gotten into. They, but they've just watched from a distance. Um, yeah. So they wanted to come see what this was all about. And I knew that Black Hills, I was confident enough by Black Hills that they're, if they kind of messed up any of the crewing stuff, I would be okay that I was just I'm confident enough by this point and I could handle Black Hills. So, so they came and did Black Hills with me. They had a lot of fun with that. Um, got caught in a rainstorm in the middle of the night with that one because uh, I was so sure that it wasn't going to rain anymore. So I left my raincoat <laughs> with my crew and I'm like, it's not going to rain anymore. And then we're getting, I'm getting my, my patient and I were getting rained on at one in the morning with sideways of blowing rain and I'm just in a long sleeve t-shirt and you just feel you feel you, you think you know everything you think you're experienced you think you've got yourself <laughs> together and then you make stupid mistakes yep. <laughs> so we just run as fast as we can because there's nothing for it at this point because the only way out of this is ahead very quickly um so that was a lot of fun and then we did crazy mountain ultra where you paced me for uh 25 miles or both of you paced me for 25 and six miles and that race was something else in the middle of that race i was definitely thinking like what did i what why did I sign up for this? And then another one after this, like, I don't know if I could do another one after this, but that crazy mountain ultra, that was such a well executed event on par with Bighorn and Bigfoot in terms of the level of professionalism of the race organizers. They just put together a really, really good product with well-marked course, except for the goats ate the course. Um, <laughs> uh, the aid stations were great. The volunteers knew their stuff. Um, and just a challenging, challenging course with that 23 or so thousand feet of elevation gain at, at, at Crazy Mountain Ultra. That, that thing was awesome. Yeah, I keep telling people that, you know, I, I have different people ask me about it, you know, throughout, you know, on Instagram and just in personal people that I know. And I just tell them that that's probably one of the better races that I've been to as far as support. I remember that one aid yeah. station we rolled in and that lady just came up to us. She said, hey, I'm here for you guys. What do you need? And I was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm just. You never, you know, you sometimes you run these hundreds and, you know, 
other ultras. And then you kind of get in the aid station people are just kind of standing around and you kind of help yourself. But mm -hmm. I was blown away because that was where we had done, a, I think, a 12 mile section and very little trail kind of just, you know, cutting yep. our own path. And it was it had to have been upper 90s, low hundreds. It was extremely hot, yeah. you know everyone from crew to pace or pacers to the actual runners were just beat up. Um, I think I even told you at one point when we were, you know, we were kind of running downhill again. I was like, yeah, man, uh, I know I'm not supposed to complain, but damn it. It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We get to that station. What do you need? Well, I'm dead. If you could bring me back to life, that would be great. And they did. It was amazing. Yeah, they did. They had, they had everything we needed. And I think that it was just crazy watching everybody roll into that aid station. Just, absolutely defeated um i think we had a 500 foot climb to the aid station so i yes. i'll never i'll never forget that little little hill trail thing we were running up what running we were walking but i just i was leading this huge pack of like 12 people and i turned around and everybody just looked so defeated and just when they got into that aid station it just looked yeah. oh it just looked awful but and then everybody left with smiles and i was just you know that yeah that's how you can just determine what a, you know, a good aid station, great support is like. And so uh, I was very yeah, impressed. I've been talking that up. And I think uh, somebody else on this podcast is uh, thinking about pushing the button when it comes open. So. Ooh, think yeah. about it, Robbie. Huh? <laughs> this close. <laughs> you, you saw the least of the course. There's, there's much more out there than what you saw. <laughs> that's, that's why, that's why I'm like, oh, I just ran this uh, six miles on the road. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, after so after Black Hills, uh, I, I, I'm becoming intrigued by the idea of doing a hundred mile without crew or pacers. I kind of want to see what that's like um, on the right course. But I could not have done crazy without the crew and pacers. Um, I, I've always fancied myself a strong climber, and I think I climbed the first of the four big climbs really well. But then by the second climb, I'm like, nope, this sucks. This is going to be a hard, hard race. Uh, and it was after the second climb that I picked up, that I picked up Chris for pacing. Uh, and then, and then, and then you, Justin, you, Robbie, and I, I would not have finished that race without crew pacers. That was the big takeaway from that one. It's like, sometimes that's what you need to do these things is people just to <laughs> smile when you don't want to, and to just drag you ahead when you really don't want to. Yep, yep. So that was the big takeaway was just the, the, the crucialness of crew and pacers who just, I couldn't have done the race without you guys. I'll never forget when we, you said we we're going to walk to the top of that hill, then we're going to send it. And I was like, this guy's got like 90 miles on his legs. What's he going to send? <laughs> and I just started running and looked down and we're doing 11 miles, 10 minute miles. And this pace is great. Keep it up. Yeah. <laughs> we did. I couldn't believe the pace you got us on to get going down that road. That was awesome. And I, I really enjoyed that we, we tried to talk for a minute, but it was so hot that I had this huge ice bandana on that was <laughs> slapping me in the face with every step, uh, which was great because then it was pulling my back and my face. And I'm like, Robbie, I can't hear a thing you're saying. Let, let's just run. <laughs> yeah, I just put my head down and went. <laughs> yep, that, that was awesome. And then we got to the, the grass field for like the last half mile, mile. That grass was really, really tough to run through. Like a, it was like a mowed hay field, and so it's like this stick, uh, stiff grass. It's like two inches tall. I had to pull out my poles again for that. It was such a pain to run through. <laughs> and you could see the finish. But you can <laughs> see the finish. That race was so cool. Yeah, and then the next race is is the I Am Tough 100 miler out in western Idaho, just because I've got a friend who lives near there. So um, kind of their local race. Um, and that's on par with uh crazy mountain ultra for elevation maybe a little bit less but maybe on par and um maybe maybe a little bit more um cowboy like they're there they they don't put out any mandatory gear they say if you come to this race you need to know what you're doing by the time you do this race and so they're they, they they've resisted the the push towards mandatory gear and anything like that they just they expect you to come out there and know what you're doing. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to that one next month. And, you know, even with that, it's well-marked and everything and a challenging course, but it's in September and not in July. So I don't, I, it should not be as hot. Yeah. So looking forward to that one. But, uh, as with all these races, it is always an open question whether or not you'll be able to finish it. Um, these things are never guaranteed, but that's kind of why we like them, I think. So where do you see yourself, uh, running goals wise? Where do you see, where do you see yourself in a, a couple of years. I, I know you said the triple crown's coming up, but is there anything else that 
that you kind of just have your mindset on that you really want to do? Hmm. I, I've got, I've got my eye on the bear 100. That's one I want. Um, I'm happy to keep playing the lottery game for, for Western States and for, and for hard rock. Um, so we'll see if those ever happen. I think Western States eventually will, but I think the hard rock lottery is so competitive that I don't I'm not setting my heart on that in any strong way. So want to do, want to do Western eventually. Um, but then I just kind of want to keep exploring. I, I, I don't think there's going to be too many races that I'll go back and repeat because I just want to keep trying new races and new places. Um, I've seen, I can't, uh, the Pinhoti 100, I think down in Georgia or something. I've never raced the East coast, but I'd like to try something like that just to see what the East coast is like. Um, so I want to try the triple crown. Um, this summer's a lot with three races. I'm, I may not do three races again, or if I do, I might, you know, try to do the East coast or the South so that they become later in the fall. So it's not three races in three months because this is definitely, it's definitely occupying a summer. Yeah. So, so my big goal is just to keep exploring different places. It's a, it's a, it's a great way to travel and see new places that I wouldn't get to otherwise. And running all these races is sometimes you, you know, you feel bad having to ask like, Hey, do you mind coming out and crewing me? Do you mind coming out and pacing? And so it seems like, you know, you're calling in all these favors and then you're like, Oh, well, I got to repay these favors at some point. <laughs> so, yep, yep, yep. you know, I don't so, work with you for sure. And I'm happy, I'm happy to repay the favors. No, I, and, and, and no way, shape or form. That's what I was, what I was pointing to, but it's just, you know, you, you feel bad asking people to drop a whole weekend. And I know at least I have in the, you know, the, the yeah, hundreds yeah. that I've done that I've asked people to come out and pace and crew. It's, you know, it's, that's a big ask of people and some, you know, so I, I don't know. And so, you know, running all those races is, you know, unless you want to do, I am tough by yourself, but, um, is that going to be the one you do solo? Oh, I don't know. I've got my <laughs> one friend who lives there. She's going to crew. Uh, okay. She's going to pace a little bit. I'm going to throw out to their Facebook group and see if any locals want to, want to pace me there. Um, yeah. that's always a great so, idea too. Cause they don't really have to travel and they can just kind of show yeah. up and they run their local trails and they know the trails, So they can kind of prep you yeah. for like, Hey man, you might want to eat something. We got a big climb coming. So and hey, for me, that's part of the interest. That's part of my interest in seeing if I can do one of these things solo, because if I could get that confidence and that skill level to just do a, a moderate hundred miler solo, like to me, that just kind of increases my ability to travel and do these things. If I don't have to bring my friends with me to yeah. their, 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 their vacation time. Javelina might be a good one to go down there, put down a solo effort. It would be a good spot for a solo effort, but it's such a party. Bring your friends for that one. <laughs> <It's a party. laughs> hey, so wrapping this up, man, we always uh, we always ask a couple questions at the end. So uh, one big one is what type of gear do you use? What are you running in? Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, let's go um, top to bottom. Uh, I got on the rabbit uh, rabbit shirts a couple of years ago. Um so I like that. I really enjoy that rabbit button down shirt uh, with snap buttons. It's a little bit, a little bit cowboy uh, for being from Wyoming. So I like rabbit running shirts. I like the path project shorts and liners. Um, um, so those are, those, those are what I use there. Got onto the ultra shoes a couple years ago uh, and I made that adjustment to the zero drop. And I've really enjoyed that. Um, so I use ultra for road and trail. It's the only shoe I'm using anymore. And then the Exosense skin socks, I think, have saved my feet through these long races. Are you running toe socks or just regular socks? Just regular ones for me. I've not. I have. I've tried the toe socks. Uh, I'm the. I'm a weird guy who hasn't loved them, but I don't think I've given them enough tr- a ton, enough time yet to to give a real opinion on those yet. Yeah, knock on wood. I wear I wear uh, toe socks, and I have yet to get blisters on my toes from all okay. the crazy adventures I've done. So that's you know whether it's. In Gingy, XO, whatever. I actually have some cheap Amazon socks that I actually really, really like, and they're toe socks. Um, I think it's like a pack of three of them for like 20 bucks. And so that I, might, uh, I might try that because, you yeah. know, the tough part about this gear is like buying it to try. And if you don't like it, then you've got $35 socks in your drawer that you can't use. So yeah, I'll send you the uh, link on the ones that I have. I actually really like them. And, great, actually. And yeah. Like I said, they're 20 bucks and they have yet to fail me. And I've, uh, I did my hundred in them. I, I was out there with you in them. So, uh, yeah, I've, I like I've, hearing that, that we don't always need the expensive stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The little Amazon socks, uh, make it, made it through big horns. And if, if anything was going to fail, it was going to fail on that race. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, one last question, um, 
who should we interview? Who do you know that we could expand our network and interview? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I think you ought to interview uh, our mutual friend, Janie. Uh, she's running, she's, she's hosting, uh, directing cool races out in the Cody, Wyoming area. Uh, and uh, she, I like her philosophy that she wants her races to support the local town. Uh, so, she, so she's a person who's very much dedicated to her local town. So I think you ought to, you ought to interview her. Uh, and then I would, help, I would help make a connection with a woman named Bree Allison. She just moved from Cody uh, to Hill City. Um, she's been a powerful runner. She's a powerful runner. She paced me through the rainstorm during, um, during Black Hills. Uh, and I've ran with her a couple times. And I, I, think she's got a cool, I think she's got a cool story with some particular challenges that she's overcome in her life that I think would be worth hearing about. Yeah, cool. Well, we actually already interviewed Janie, so she has a super Excellent. she has a super cool uh, story, and that was a great podcast. So uh, look for that one coming out. Um, yeah, I I actually um, I saw you talking to Janie on on social media. So or not Janie Bree. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, might hit her up and drop your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna see if I can run with her in the next week or two. Now that she's living there in Hill City, just an hour from me. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much. I feel like we, uh, we've kind of scratched the surface as to far as we could have gone with you. Uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but man, I really appreciate the stories and uh, good luck at I Am Tough. And I hope to see that you get into Western States. And if you, uh, if you finally decide to do the Triple Crown, um, I'm going to offer up and I'll come out and I'll crew for crew and pace for Tahoe because that's the oh, one I want to do. So so hopefully that's not next year, but uh, whatever <laughs> you not next year. Yeah, cool. So whenever you decide to do that, man, you count me in for Tahoe. Perfect. I will. I'll, I'll take you up on that. Thank you. Awesome. I'll help you with Moab. Okay. <laughs> there you go. You got Moab and Tahoe locked up already. So perfect. Cool. Great. Brian, yeah, thanks for the time. I'm very grateful to be here. Yep. Hey, Great we're going to give you. We'll give you a little bit of a um, time to shout out anybody you want to shout out. Um, this is. The floor is open for you if you want to, you know, talk about your social medias or whatever you want to talk about. We'll give we'll give you a couple of minutes just to to chat that up. Sure, I mean, yeah, I, I Instagram's my favorite one, and Twitter for people who don't like to spell. Um, so Y O S on Instagram, W Y O H E S S. Um, I use Facebook a little bit, but Instagram's the the one I like to use. So um, mostly mostly just running pictures over there or skiing when that's the season uh not a lot of churchy stuff there for me it's just mostly just running stuff um yeah awesome cool well thanks again man it was great it was a pleasure thank you guys you guys have a great evening you too it was great seeing you bye thank you for listening this podcast has been produced and edited by backbeat sound and find us on Instagram at BackbeatSound1776 or email us at BackbeatSound1776 at gmail.com.